Welcome to the Femtech Health Podcast. Today, we're joined by Brianne Huss, who is a family nurse practitioner, midwife, and expert in gynecological care and hormone therapy. In this episode, we'll be discussing a range of topics related to women's health, including birth control, hormone issues in younger women, and managing hormones during different life stages. You're going to learn about the different types of birth control options available, how to choose the best option for your needs, and the impact of hormones on women's health. So, whether you're a young woman considering birth control or navigating the perimenopause and menopause journey, this episode has something for you. All right, let's get started with today's show. Today, I'm here at the show with Brianne Huss, and Brianne Huss is a family nurse practitioner. She is a midwife, and she also does so much work in the gynecological world with hormones. So, Brianne, thanks for being with us. She's also a friend, a mom, a wife, and a mom of two great kids. And she just has this great love of women's health. So, again, thanks for being here. And tell us a little bit about Happy your journey into women's health. Yes. Yeah. So, I started in healthcare when I was 19. I became a licensed practical nurse, so an LPN. And I was working in a well baby nursery when I first started. And then that's where my love of women's health came. I started cross-training over to postpartum care. And then from there, I just kind of grew and started becoming more kind of integrated, doing labor and delivery nursing. And then after 13 years of being a nurse, I went back to school and became a women's health nurse practitioner and then a certified nurse midwife and delivered babies at the hospital for five years. And then two years ago, I transitioned to being in the clinic only. And so now I do primarily GYN care with a focus mostly on like hormone replacement therapy, care of women over 50, and just keep learning more about all of that. I love it. So it kind of brought you through this whole cycle of women's health, and then you can kind of specialize in different areas. And that's, I think, the beauty of this work, right? We just keep growing in all of it. Yeah. I really wanted to have you on today just because there's so much questions, so many questions about hormones and what women should be on and what they shouldn't be on. And I guess my first question out of the gate is, you know, there seems to be a lot of our younger women who have been on birth control for such long periods of time and then maybe seem to be having fertility issues or different issues. Can you speak to that as we move forward? Sherry, it's cutting out so I didn't actually hear your question. Oh, so sorry. So, Brienne, we're just looking so much at some of the younger generation that has so many hormone issues. And maybe different things going on. So they maybe are on birth control for such a longer period of time because maybe they're not trying to get pregnant till so much later. And so do you think that being on birth control long term is a problem for young women? Or what are you thinking about that? Yeah, I think that definitely we're seeing more women delaying their time frame of when they're trying to get pregnant. We're seeing more women waiting until their career is established and a majority of our population having babies is going to be more women in their 30s. Studies show that actually it's protective of the ovaries for certain types of birth control. And so when we're talking about birth control, like most women just think about the oral pill that they're going to take daily. That's usually a combination of estrogen and progesterone. And then there's more options. There's progesterone-only birth control. There's like the depo shot, which is progesterone. There's the pill, the patch, the ring, there's IUDs, and then also the next clinon, which is the little rod that goes in the arm. The ones that are injectable, like the Depo-Provera, that one can take a long time to get out of your system because it's depositing in your fat and slowly releasing. So 
women that are on the Depo shot, it can take a while until they get a return to regular periods and that can delay them getting pregnant. As far as like the ones that are quickly reversible, the IUD, so the intrauterine device, that's progesterone only, or the next one on, which is the rod in the arm, progesterone only, those ones are quickly reversible. We call those the long-term reversible birth control options. And then the pill is one that it just varies for different people, but typically within two or three months, they should be getting to where their normal cycles would be. And when they're on a combination birth control, like the estrogen um, containing pill patch or ring, it actually kind of quiets down the ovaries. And then women with symptoms of like polycystic ovarian syndrome, things like that actually tend to have better success getting pregnant if they've been on birth control, suppressing the ovarian function until they're ready to try and conceive. Thank you. That's good. That just helps us a little bit sort of cycle through. So how do you decide with different women, like what's the best option for them? You know, a young woman comes in and says, listen, I don't want to have children, you know, for 10 years until I am in my 30s, I'm working on my career, et cetera. Like what are, what are how do they figure out what's yeah. the best thing to talk to you about or actually ask their physician? Yes. I think definitely coming in with personal and family history is so important. You know, if your mom has been on a birth control that didn't work well for her, a lot of times girls are going to have the same response. And then timing. So if you come in and you want to have a baby in a couple of years, we'll look at it differently than maybe if you don't want a baby for 10 years or you're undecided and don't know how long. But usually it's just individualized. I usually like to just go through the whole gamut. There's constantly different birth controls being added to non-hormonal options as well. And looking at the medical history, if someone is high risk for like metabolic syndrome, they have thyroid disorder. If they're um, using nicotine, that all kind of changes the way that we guide which birth control to go on. So I think usually just having a conversation and it's so individualized. I have a few that I tend to see less reactions with. If someone wants a combined birth control to have really good cycle control, that's the nice benefit. So if you're taking your pill every day, you have your three weeks scheduled for your pill. And then the fourth week is when they would expect to have their period. Typically when they're on a lotus birth control pill that's combined, there's really predictable, light, regular cycles. And then there's an option for like extended cycling. So you can go every three months to have a cycle, which can be convenient for athletes and people that don't want to have a period or have something coming up and they want to skip a cycle. There's no medical need for you to have a period or withdrawal bleed if you're not on your own kind of course. If you're on hormones and controlling it, the lining's not thickening and so it's not dangerous. I really like the NuvaRing. The NuvaRing is a nice option of a low dose of hormone where you can get good control of your cycle. So that is estrogen and progesterone. It's like a soft, flexible ring that you'll slide inside of the vaginal area where like a tampon would be. And you leave it there for three weeks, take it out. And during that week, that's when you would expect to have your cycle. And the hormones of the NuvaRing are mostly localized to the uterus and the ovaries kind of absorbed through that vaginal tissue not as much systemic and the dose can be lower than when you have to actually take a pill and it has the first pass, like it has to get cleared by the liver and the kidneys. And so the dose is a little bit higher and then there's more side effects if you're going to take it orally. And then some people are interested in not remembering something to change. So the pill might not be great because they don't remember to take the pill every day or the NuvaRing's not great because they're just not comfortable with inserting it. There is the patch. There's a patch that goes on on for weeks, which now you'll have three weeks with the patch on. 
and then a week without it. But some people don't remember switching that either. So then we'll look at things like the IUD or the next one on as an alternative. If they want something, they don't have to think about it, place it, forget it. And they're covered 99% protection against pregnancy. That's wow. That's great. So tell us a little bit, you know, the Explanon, what do you think about? It's just progesterone you said then? Yep. So the next Explanon is progesterone only. And so it's an implant. It used to be called like Norplant and it was several rods. It was just, a, it's a small rod that we'll place in the kind of back of the arm. It's small. It releases progesterone over the course of three years. In that one, it's effective quickly and then it's quickly reversible too. With the progesterone only, the next quinone or the IUD or the depo shot, there's not predictable regular periods. And so the main reason women have it removed is because they're not able to plan when their period is going to come. It can be unpredictable spotting and bleeding. Some people don't have any bleeding at all, which is nice. Others have lighter periods and then others just like this constant spotting and bleeding. And it's the same so, hormone as what you would do in like an IUD. I see. So with a lot of our women athletes, they want something that makes their life, life a little bit easier, you know, so they don't have to be worried. So, you know, I, I kind of mentioned earlier some of those things I um, no, my one niece was saying like everybody on her team was uh, kind of had the explanation on because it was an easier way they thought to like have everybody covered. What is what is your suggestion, you know, for some of our higher level athletes who are, you know, working hard, training so hard, they don't want to bleed all the time. Yeah, definitely. So I always kind of get a judge on how their cycles are normally. Some athletes are barely having any periods because they just have such a low body fat content. And then others are having these like horrendous, heavy, painful periods. And so kind of depending on what their cycles are like before we do birth control can kind of help guide us for what they're doing. There is the Mirena IUD or the Kylena. Those ones tend to make periods very light, less painful, less heavy, but there's not predictability to it. So a third of people won't get a period at all, which is great. A third have lighter cycles, but the other third, it can be like unpredictable spotting and bleeding. But sometimes the IUD is nice for athletes if it takes their periods all the way away, but there's no guarantee with it. The nice thing with the IUD, if they do that, they have 99% protection against getting pregnant. And we can also add a little bit of low-dose estrogen, even short-term, and sometimes that can help regulate their cycles. And it's not too much hormone. It's just a little bit of an additive to help with the symptoms that they're having. But also, I love the NuvaRing for athletes and they can even do continuous cycling with that. It's off-labeled use, but they can have their ring and just have a cycle every three months or they can even go longer if they have sports that interfere and it would make it inconvenient for them to have their cycle. So some of our patients who have IUDs, I, I notice occasionally, you know, they may have had never had any pelvic pain and all of a sudden they have an IUD and then suddenly they're like, hey, something just feels not the same down there? Do you see that? Or yeah. what? what is that, you know, what is that component to you? I think there are a small percentage of women that always have discomfort after an IUD was placed. And I think more commonly if they've never had a baby, it used to be there was only one size of the IUDs, the Marina and then the Copper IUD. And now there's smaller ones, the Kylina and the Skyla. And those ones tend to do better for people that haven't had a baby. But sometimes even if it's in there for a few months, they never really get used to it and they always have cramping. I feel like it's less common, but definitely it's a side effect. And so, you know, sometimes just trying ibuprofen short term, seeing if their body can adjust, but sometimes we remove them because that 
cramping never goes away. And so I tell people, if you have an IUD, give it some time, typically two or three months, you should kind of know how it's going to work and go from there. Good. So like they just need a longer time frame, maybe two to just figure out like, yeah, you like, oh, get this out. Yeah, that's a good. Right. I mean, that's give a it a little bit of adjustment time. Yeah, just to see if it is, you know, something that can work for them. So as people move forward, like, will you just explain the copper? Yep. So the copper IUD sits up in the uterus and it's non-hormonal, which is great. It has copper kind of round, wound around the IUD and the copper irritates the lining of the uterus. And so it prevents anything from implanting. And also sperm can't swim when it's around copper. So it prevents the sperm from being able to make it up to an egg. And so it works two different ways to prevent pregnancy. And it's 99% effective. But because the copper is irritating the lining of the uterus, it can make people's periods last a little bit longer, maybe one or two day longer. Their cycles can be heavier and also more crampy. So people with terrible cycles and they're heavy and crampy and long and they're bleeding a lot, I wouldn't recommend the copper IUD. But if they have already light cycles that aren't too bothersome, then the copper IUD might be a great option. And anyone that has a reason that they can't use birth control, maybe a history of a clotting disorder, high blood pressure, things like that, it's a great option too. One we didn't go over is Vexi. is another newer birth control. It's a jelly that you use just when you're sexually active, similar to like a spermicide would be used. It's prescription. You would get the prescription for that. You just insert the jelly before you're sexually active, and then that reduces the environment to make it not welcoming for sperm. And so that's another one that's non-hormonal. And then there's the condoms and diaphragms are actually an option too. Now the diaphragms have, there's one called the kayak and that one, one size fits most, you come in, you get fitted for it, and then it's good for five years. And so that's something that's another option besides an IUD or condoms without using any hormones. So when they use this, this flexi, I've never even heard of this jelly. So it's P-H-E-X-X-I, flexi. Oh, okay, perfect. So uh, do they use that with the condom or there, is that what you're doing with it then? It, or they, they just, just use alone. It's as effect. Okay. Yep. They can use it how, without and in, uh, in place of. And how effective is it? About 75% effective. And that's the same effectiveness okay. as condoms. And it's just dependent on their use, right? If they don't use it, it's not going to work. Same with condoms. If you don't put a condom on, it's not going to work. So people that are using condoms for birth control, they can get pregnant more easily than if you're on something that's more managed. Yes. No, thank you for saying that. I like the statistics because I think that helps our younger population. Yeah. You know, when they're trying to thread through all of these things, it's a lot of different ways to it's look at birth control for women. And until we have birth control for men, I think we're in, we're in this space, yep. right? So I know. Um, I feel like this day and age for sure that I'm surprised we don't have male birth control. All there is is a vasectomy and that's not considered reversible. But I just hope down the pipeline, there's something that men can do to prevent pregnancy and have some responsibility for that too. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I think that needs to happen right away, actually. Yes, so uh, I agree. So say this, that a young woman comes in and we're just given a scenario, you know, really heavy periods, you know, she's 15, 16 years old. It's really disruptive to her lifestyle. 
And, you know, you're kind of talking through these different things with her, you know, heavy bleeding maybe keeps her out of school for two or three days of every month because it's so aggressive. What what would be, you know, like your go-to thing for someone like her? Yeah, I think definitely ruling out other underlying causes first and trying to figure out, is there a risk for maybe there being some fibroids or endometriosis, cyst on the ovaries? Is her thyroid gland normal? Making sure that there's not any concern for like a pituitary abnormality that can downstream affect your hormones. And then also kind of looking at lifestyle choices. I think that our bodies can become extra inflammatory because of the foods and things in our environment. And so I always start kind of doing first an evaluation to see if any of that stuff might be what's causing those symptoms. If everything comes back and it's normal, then we talk about how when your periods are first starting and then at the end, when you're in perimenopause, there's so much inconsistency and it's normal. And so there's a ramp up time. If you start your period, when you're 12, it takes until your early 20s, until your cycles are really regulated and your hormones are balanced. And so there's different things, different hormones. There's things like you can look online for seed cycling. There's ways that you can eat different seeds. They have different effect on hormones during the cycle, changing eating, adding supplements, or we can look at maybe doing a little bit of a birth control. And so somebody with really heavy, painful periods Lots of the things can work, but a low-dose birth control pill can be helpful. The patch can be helpful. The NuvaRing can be helpful. Otherwise, maybe looking at an IUD like the Kylena, because then that's going to thin the lining of the uterus and it's going to help so that there's not as much heavy, painful bleeding. Right, right. So she can, yeah, not so many days away from school or her job or whatever she's working. Yes. Yeah. Now I know that's true. You mentioned thyroid, pituitary glands. like. Talk a little bit about that, because I think sometimes people don't understand how all the reproductive hormones, our adrenal glands, our thyroid, all all these things work together. So maybe share information with everybody about that. Yeah. So there's definitely a circulation of how things go and a feedback mechanism. There's something called the HPA axis, the hypothalamus pituitary axis. And so there's messages from your brain and different organs in your body that are going to send messages to your ovaries. And that is what kind of regulates your cycle. So every month the body's telling the uterus to get a thickened lining waiting for a pregnancy. So it has lots of blood flow there. And then they'll have a huge surge in hormones when they'll release an egg. They don't get pregnant. And then the body says, oh, there's no pregnancy. Let's shed that lining away. And that's when their period comes. If there's something wrong with the thyroid gland, which is in your neck, it's part of the messenger in your hormone control. And so if that is up, you have low or high thyroid then your ovaries won't get the right message. There's also, if someone has a a problem with their pituitary gland, which is in their brain, it can put out different hormone levels and then that can interfere with your hormones downstream as well. And then people also can have metabolic issues like insulin resistance, something called polycystic ovarian syndrome. Normally insulin has to get into the ovary and then inside the ovary that will help it to develop an egg that then is big enough and ready where it can be released to get pregnant. With insulin resistance, the insulin's just kind of bouncing off of the egg, only a little bit's getting in there, and so they don't actually have ovulation. And so that can cause their periods to be really irregular too. How does someone talk to maybe their provider about some of these things where maybe they've tried, you know, different pills or IUDs or different yep. things, and they just never seem to feel steady, you know, 
you know, maybe they're in their early 20s. And by then we're thinking, hey, it should have steadied out a little bit. Yeah. How do they have these conversations maybe with their primary care physicians or their nurse yep. practitioners? I think, first of all, I always recommend that they'll start a log. So if they are on their smartphones, there's all kinds of smart apps for checking their cycles. It's always nice when they can kind of group their symptoms to different dates and keep a log for about three months to get an idea. Are they always having pain and it's two weeks before their period? Or are they always having some mood changes or different cravings or headaches, migraines, things like that? If you track it for three months and keep a log, then we can kind of look back and be like, oh, that was actually like two days before your period or this always happened while your period started. I think that that kind of gives more of a guidance for what's going on. And then just logging all the symptoms they're noticing, having it written down so that when they go in and see their provider, they can really have a clear list so they don't forget. But definitely keeping that log for about three months, it's really helpful. So then we can look and see like, when is your cycle coming? Is it irregular? How many days is it lasting? And then looking what the symptoms are during different timeframes. And then also keeping track. Some people, they've been on tons of different hormones in the past and they don't know what it was. So remembering things that you've tried in the past. So then we can say like, oh, you tried this specific brand. It didn't work. Let's see if we can do one with a different hormone. Yeah, no, that's a good, I I think that's really important. And all the new apps that are out, do you have a favorite app? Yes. Like one that you tell people? I don't have a favorite. No, I, I think everyone just has different preferences. There's so many free ones. I am old school and I still like to have a physical calendar and a little color code and mark it that way. So I do not know which ones are going to be best, but I know there's a lot out there. There is. And I think it's just a good way. I know I'm kind of the paper person too, but but I think it's good. Like you can track, you can kind of figure out like, hey, what's going on during these different timeframes and it really helps people. So talk a little bit yeah. about PCOS so that people understand maybe yeah. a little bit. You you mentioned a little bit, but then how would they regulate or how do they sort of help themselves feel better with that particular syndrome? Yeah. PCOS is super tricky. It has a big endocrine component. I feel like it's not named appropriately. It's polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's named that because the insulin resistance has an effect on the ovaries, but it's not that the ovaries have caused the problem without throughout the whole body. And so I don't know. I feel like it should be some kind of metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance for a a name of it. But their body just has more male hormones and more insulin that, that is not getting into the cells. And so with polycystic ovarian syndrome, we tend to see people having irregular periods, Sometimes they'll have more painful periods. If they did tracking for ovulation, a lot of times they're what we say is anovulatory, not having ovulation. And that's because that insulin is not getting into the egg to develop that mature follicle to release it. With polycystic ovarian syndrome, we can manage symptoms with birth control, but really it's not going to treat the underlying problem. There's a lot of information out there for dietary changes, the Mediterranean diet, eating more clean ketogenic type foods, you know, 90% of the time can make a huge difference. Cutting out gluten and dairy can make a big difference for PCOS. It causes inflammation throughout the whole body when you're eating some of those inflammatory foods. And so if you can calm that down, your body can function better. And then there's supplements that can help. There's supplements that can help your body to improve its insulin. It can help it to kind of produce more progesterone. So there's ways outside of being on a birth control to manage the symptoms. 
I usually like to, if someone is diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, first look at diet and exercise. There's so much research to support even five or 10% weight loss can get them back to having regular predictable cycles. So if we can focus on that and not have to manage it with hormones, that's easier or not easier, more treating the underlying problem. So kind of some lifestyle interventions maybe first and then work through lifestyle things and just see, oh, does that make some improvement? You know, kind of in the overall look of it. And maybe that, I mean, it's interesting, five to 10 pounds only of weight loss. You know, five to 10 percent. Yeah, five to. Oh, five to 10. Okay. Percent. Yeah. Perfect. Good. I'm just clarifying. Yeah. No, that's really good, though, because I think that helps people too. you know, understand, hey, I have some other options, maybe just besides, you know, different birth control pills or different things like that, because I know sometimes they get on them and they're they're bothersome or they don't really like them or, you know, just don't feel that comfortable on them. So is this idea that some of us just do better on estrogen more and somebody's more progesterone driven or more more male male hormone driven? Is there something to that? Yeah, for sure. There's women that are more estrogen dominant, others that are low on estrogen, and then some that definitely have more of that male hormone. And that's more common with the PCOS. There's more testosterone. And so then you'll notice side effects of like acne, facial hair growth, thinning of your hair, just some of those symptoms that kind of go along with increased testosterone. And then estrogen dominance is really common as well. And a lot of times that can be managed with food and supplements. I always encourage people that have symptoms of their estrogen being elevated. It's doing like a liver cleanse or a detox. And then that helps your body get rid of estrogen. If your liver's dumped up and the filter is not working as well as it should, if you can do a liver detox or a cleanse, then it can process your hormones better. And then sometimes that's enough to get your body in alignment. There's things like DIM and milk thistle and doing like hot water with lemon in the morning. So lots of different options on how to kind of get the body functioning and processing hormones better. And people with more like moodiness and PMS symptoms, a lot of times they don't have enough progesterone. And so we look at ways on trying to get their progesterone levels increased, especially the two weeks before their period comes. Things like a chase berry or a Vitex supplement sometimes can be helpful for that or looking to make sure they don't have other issues, going back to thyroid disorder, things like that. So I've now, you know, kind of heard you say thyroid a lot, right? So, you know, how are women, you know, I think this is some of the things too, when women are saying, oh, I had my thyroid checked. And then they're like, oh, I'm fine. And then you realize like, oh, there's way more things we're looking at, right? When we're looking at someone's quote, just thyroid, will you talk about that for a minute? Because I think sometimes there's a fair amount of confusion realizing how all these reproductive hormones and the thyroid all mix together. Yeah. And it's not a straightforward system. It's super complex, but definitely if there's some inflammation of the thyroid, it can cause so many other body problems. The standard screening test for thyroid is the TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone. So that's when your brain is sending a message to the thyroid gland to produce the hormone. And so the idea is if that messenger is in the normal range, then the thyroid should be functioning appropriately. But when we're doing that standard screening, we're missing actually checking how much thyroid gland is circulating in the system. There's tests that can check for antibodies. And then also there's a thyroid hormone called T3. And that is something that is kind of out in your body available to convert it into the active T4 
hormone. And so there's different extended testing that's available. If you feel like, man, it just seems like these symptoms match up with maybe a thyroid abnormality, let's dig a little bit deeper. I I, uh, have a friend of mine who's a, does a lot of endocrinology work. And he was sort of saying like, you know, the tests are like the hand in the glove. Like you have to look at symptoms, but you have to look at tests. So People, you know, again, I'll I'll tell my patients, hey, track your symptoms. Do you know what I mean? For a little while, two or three months of, hey, oh, my hair is thinner or I'm not sleeping well or, you know, all the my nails are brittle or my, you know, skin is super dry or I'm rashy and I never was before. And do you look at all of those puzzle pieces as well when people come in? Yep. Especially a lot of people will come in, they're just feeling off, right? They're, they're tired. They don't have as much energy. They feel like they have brain fog. They've gained weight. Even if they haven't made any changes to their diet or exercise pattern, uh, their hair is thinner. Their skin is super dry, brittle nails, like you had mentioned, all of those things. And then we do a TSH and it's normal. Um, sometimes then we'll talk about maybe adding additional testing. I think, you know, Functional medicine and naturopaths have a huge study background. They've just gotten more training than the general medical population on ways to look deeper at the root cause. And so sometimes that can be an added benefit is kind of looking back, what nutrients are they deficient on? What foods are they missing in their diet? Things like that, I think can be a good component to also work with. So let's just talk about postpartum moms. I know you took care of so many prenatal and postpartum moms. I know some of our postpartum moms are, you know, they struggle hormonally, you know, after baby, you know, maybe they're breastfeeding. Will you just kind of address with us a little bit about what that's about? What are they struggling with? Why do they feel maybe some brain fog or so disconnected, you know, from themselves? It's San is the baby and placenta are born. When someone has a baby, there's a huge shift in your hormones. Now this placenta that was putting hormones out, while you were pregnant has just kind of all gone away. And then now you're nursing as well. And that's going to produce a whole bunch of hormones as well. So there's a huge shift from pregnancy to postpartum. It's such a quick amount of time within that 24 hours, your body has had just a complete turnaround of what hormones are circulating. And also add into it, you're depleted from being in labor, maybe for a long time, pushing and now recovering. So just the healing process for the body, as well as taking care of a newborn and nursing. And that takes a lot of energy and calories. And so women don't feel good a lot of times in the beginning. So it's so important to have that time to be, you know, as low key as possible and not trying to do too much in that postpartum period to make a huge difference, really focus on resting, getting good nutrition, and then taking care of baby and not trying to do too much else. It takes a while for the body to adjust. So making sure you're getting good iron-rich foods in your diet, the appropriate amount of calories. Breastfeeding burns like an extra 750 calories a day. And so a lot of people just continue to eat the same and they're not getting enough from what the baby's taking away. And then their their lactation is going to suppress their hormones. There's low estrogen when you're breastfeeding and estrogen is responsible for a lot of the way that you feel kind of generalized throughout your body. And so some women, the whole time they're nursing, just kind of feel a little bit off. Yeah, I know. And it's so much food we kind of talk about with our postpartum moms, don't we? Mm-hmm. Just, you know, increasing caloric cal- yep. intake, kind of more, 
you know, more on board because that baby's going to get the good stuff and then you're tired on the other end of it. So do you ever use any hormones at all after baby helping people, maybe in the pelvic floor area, any of those kinds of things? Yeah. So if a woman is breastfeeding, we want to stay away from like systemic estrogen, estrogen throughout the whole body, because that will impact milk supply. But some women will have just painful intercourse when they're breastfeeding, even though maybe it's been a year and a half since the baby was born, they're still having this vaginal dryness or discomfort. And so we can look at there's different over-the-counter things, lubricants, as well as vaginal moisturizers that have that hyaluronic acid in it can help. And if that's not enough, sometimes we'll give a little bit of low-dose estrogen. It's just a topical cream local on the vaginal tissue, and it's not going to go throughout the whole body. It's not systemic. And so it's still safe to use while somebody's breastfeeding. Uh, you always hear, stay away from estrogen if you're nursing. It's going Im- to impact your milk supply. But that's if you're taking it orally or using it you know, throughout your whole body. And so it is very safe and reasonable to do a low-dose estrogen to kind of help with those symptoms. And also, if they're working on their pelvic floor health and those muscles just don't have the strength and this integrity, sometimes a little bit of estrogen will help along with things that you're doing with train, retraining mm-hmm. their pelvic floor and getting that healing process going. Yeah, I know I've worked a little bit with a urogynecologist out of California, and I remember you know, her kind of explaining, hey, some of our moms just have to have some local topical on board. And she said, sometimes we just tell them, hey, like for a year just to get this you know, tissue sort of healthy again. I know in our office, we use a lot of, you know, sharing of hyaluronic acid, you know what I mean? Some of the different Mm -hmm. companies make it good, clean, love, et cetera. But we've seen a lot of really great results just helping the tissue heal quicker, you know, so they can kind of get back to their activities and back to sport and back to all of those things. And it's amazing just which, you know, kind of helping that tissue kind of plump back up a little bit and kind of it, you know, it, it just gives it much more resilience faster too. So yeah. Well, good. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, this kind of segues us just into the next step of people's lives where, you know, they've had their babies and now they're moving kind of in this funny perimen- perimenopause, menopause neighborhood. There's yeah. so much confusion right now for a lot of our women who are you know, in that kind of time frame, and, you know, they may know, hey, my mother didn't go through, you know, menopause till she was 52, but I'm 44, you know, and I have things happening that seem, you know, off or odd. You know, what is the best thing for a woman to do? You know, if they come to see you, how do they talk to you and explain to you like what they feel like? And, and, what what's the steps with you then then that happened? So perimenopause is that time before menopause. The average time frame in the United States for menopause is at the age of 51, but it can be years younger, years later. But that seven or eight years before you're actually in menopause, your hormones start shifting. You just have less eggs that your body has to release. And then that alters your hormones. And so women will notice that they're tired, they're feeling like their cycles are irregular, they'll have brain fog, joint pain, just feel like the elasticity in the skin has changed, their mood has changed. There's so many things that these hormones impact. And so I think definitely like you talked about keeping a log first and then realizing like, yes, this is a real thing. Perimenopause can start, you know, in in your early 40s and people that are going through early menopause, you know, younger than 48, it could start in their 30s. And so definitely tracking what are the symptoms? Is there something else going on? 
you know, doing a workup for any kind of lab abnormalities, checking for anything in the uterus, like a fibroid, something like that, ovarian cysts, that can definitely change the way the hormones work. But then looking at ways to just help your hormones as best as you can through the perimenopause. I think one component is nutrition, nutrition and exercise. If you are starting this journey of perimenopause at your healthiest, your transition will go much smoother. So focusing on clean eating, I feel like there's so many things added in our foods that don't help our bodies. We're not eating the way that we're supposed to. Our, our ancestors of hunters and gatherers are not how we eat now. Um, Cleveland Clinic is doing a huge study right now on the impact of intermittent fasting and the effects of perimenopause and menopause. A huge complaint women will have is that they're central weight gain. Maybe their weight's the same, but now they're carrying their weight in their abdomen. And there's research that says, yeah, that happens in menopause, but intermittent fasting and cutting out foods that have a lot of inflammation can really combat that. Focusing on foods that don't have all that inflammation and trying to get back to eating more cold foods, things like um, Whole30 or Mediterranean type eating have studies that show that that can make a difference for the whole body system, but even your hormones and how you feel when you're going through menopause. Exercise as well. Women with hot flashes that start exercising can notice a, a decrease in the severity of their hot flashes. So that can be helpful as well. And then there's different hormones that we can look at as well to just supplement during that transition time. I just got back from a conference and they were talking about the new article that was released from the North American Menopause Society. So that was released in last year, 2022. And it just has a, a longstanding review of data Initially, there was something called the Women's Health Initiative study that started and then came out like, stop, don't do hormones. They're dangerous. They cause cancer. And so people have kind of shied away from looking at hormones for management. Right. But now this new study from the North American Menopause Society actually says it doesn't increase your risk of breast cancer hardly at all. Maybe one per 100,000, even the same amount of somebody that is in the overweight range or having a glass of wine a couple times a week. But if you do have breast cancer and you're on hormones, it could make it grow more quickly if it's estrogen or progesterone receptor positive. And so making sure to be doing annual routine screenings and things like that. But they're finding if you start hormones within the first 10 years of becoming in menopause and before the age of 60, that you're going to get the best benefit and reduction in things like heart disease and colon cancer without having that added risk of significant increased risk of breast cancer. And so I think being on hormones can be a really healthy way to transition through menopause, having a conversation with your provider on what are your risks and benefits. Also, there's benefit for like bone protection. When you have low estrogen and menopause, the rate of your bone deterioration increases. And so having some estrogen to help with that can be helpful too. Some people, they'll notice that their progesterone is low. They're not sleeping well. They're waking up several times a night. They're waking in the morning and having a foggy brain. And so progesterone therapy can help a lot of times in perimenopause before your, your cycle stops. And that can be a good thing to add in too. So, you know, this is kind of interesting starting at, you know, 10 years before or at that, you know, before 60. That's sort of an interesting because I think that's definitely, you know, we went through that whole thing of like no hormones at all. And now we're back yeah. to like, okay. So I think that's that's hard for some of us who've sort of heard the whole nor no hormone because, oh, here's all these yeah. risks, right? 
And how do we help educate and teach and share with people that like this isn't such a bad thing? It's more being regulated yeah. right by somebody like you, you know, helping women find the right thing. Because I think yeah. that's the biggest stress for so many women. You know, they, I know they maybe tried one thing and it didn't work, right? And so right. now, you know, like, oh, I'm not sleeping at all, you know, and then you're like, okay, well, there's yeah. something in the balance off between the maybe estrogen progesterone that you were doing. So, or maybe you're having too much of one or the other. How do we help women understand like, hey, this isn't an exact science. Like it doesn't, it's not like one shoe fits all, right? We've got to help them sort of peek right. through this sort of crazy thing, right? Yep, definitely. And it's not a one size fits all, which I think makes hormones a little bit tricky. And it's not going to work immediately and the same for everybody. So I have a lot of women come in like, oh, my, my friend is on this. So I want to be on this specific prescription. And then they would try that. And it's like, well, that combination doesn't work for you. So we kind of look at all the factors and what are the worst symptoms? Somebody that's not sleeping as night would need more progesterone than somebody that's coming in mostly for hot flashes because they need more estrogen. I always try and get women to be on like the lowest effective dose. So start low and work the way up so that there's room for increasing on the dosage. And then also looking at the different ways to take estrogen orally versus through a patch versus compounded. I feel like there's a lot of circulation about women coming in wanting um, bioidentical hormones. And in that, their mind thinks that that means compounded hormones. But bioidentical actually means that the molecular makeup is identical to what the body would produce. And so things like micronized progesterone, you can get it from a regular pharmacy and it doesn't have to be compounded. So there's options, you know, in the pharmacy and compounding pharmacies for people to look at. There's no right combination for everybody. We look at like your whole history, medical history, what your specific risks are, if you have high blood pressure or not, family history of breast cancer. If you've had a hysterectomy or not, do you still have your uterus? Do you still have your ovaries? So it just a whole medical history will go into determining what hormones might be helpful. And then it's, you know, can take some time to work through it. I know. I think that's some of the frustration maybe we see, you know, oh, they tried maybe yeah. one or two things and then they're like, you know, and they kind of throw up their hands. Yeah. But then they don't physically feel well, right? They're, you know, exhausted, yeah. tired. They're never sleeping. They have a lot of different symptomology and like we, we want them to keep going. But like, no, you need to keep going back to you figure yeah. out the right fit, right? Yeah. For where you're at to manage. And, you know, some people say, no, yeah. I just want to have nothing and kind of, you know, go into menopause, yeah. you know, or the rest of after menopause without yep. any of that. Do, what do you think about that? Like having none of that, you know, no hormones at all. Yeah. And so the FDA approval for hormones is mostly for hot flashes. And so those can be debilitating. And so I feel like when you look at the risk and benefit of hormones, if you're having hot flashes that are impacting your sleep with night sweats, you're waking up several times, or you're taking a pause from work for that three minutes or five minutes that you're getting that hot surge and that hot flash that maybe it would be worth looking into doing some hormones. But if you're wanting to do something more natural, looking at different foods or some different supplements, there's some great herbal supplements that are out there that can help with hot flashes as well. Um, one of the supplements, Estrovin, has an 85% decrease in hot flashes. So if that's someone's first complaint or their biggest thing that they have that's bothering them, sometimes I'll just have them try that Estrovin for three months first. And sometimes that's all they need. 
And then also look at maybe reducing reducing caffeine, decreasing spicy foods. There's different triggers for hot flashes that you can, you know, dress in layers and get more exercise, making sure that you're having some time for self-care. And there's also a huge mind-body connection. There's now a study that has been released about women having cognitive behavioral therapy and reducing their hot flashes without changing anything else. Just learning how their mind interprets these changes in menopause make a huge difference. Oh, I love that. That's great. I know because it almost feels like if somebody like in your family system had a hard time going into menopause, then the the yeah. generation coming seems to think, oh my gosh, this is terrible. I'm going to be just like her. Yeah. And we spend a lot of time talking to people. No, that's not the way this, you know, has to be for you. There's other ways that, you know, you can address and look at this. And like you just brought up, but, you know, like exercise and activity, changing diet. I know you talked before about intermittent fasting. Is there particular intermittent fasting that maybe people, you know, at this stage of perimenopause to menopause, do you seem to, you know, have better results with, et cetera? Yeah. In that study they're doing with Cleveland Clinic, it sounded like 18, 16 to 18 hours seemed to be like that magic time frame for the intermittent fasting. But also like the huge part of it is what do you do to break your fast? So if you, you know, don't eat anything for dinner or you eat dinner, sorry, you don't eat anything for breakfast and then your first meal is going to be at lunchtime, but you go and you get fast food breaking your fast with unhealthy foods, it's just going to cancel out all of that hard work you did not eating for that amount of time. So if you can break your fast with healthy foods, having a, a sensible meal, you know, a lean protein, rich in vegetables and healthy fats, it's just going to help boost your metabolism either. And then something we didn't talk about yet is like gut health. Gut health is so important. There's that leaky gut syndrome. A lot of us, our pH in our body has been thrown off. There's gap junctions in the gut. So there could be areas that are not sealed well, and there's proteins that can fit through and cause inflammation. But if you're eating foods rich in probiotics, those junctions close up. And so eating foods rich in prebiotics and probiotics, so fruits and vegetables with the skin on them, lots of foods that are fermented, kimchi and kombucha, kefir, sourdough bread, those kind of things are going to heal the gut. And then you just have a better metabolism. You can process the foods you're eating better, absorb things better, have less inflammation. And then that can reduce a lot of the side effects that come along with those transitions in perimenopause and menopause. Love this. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. So Brianne, as you sort of, you know, say somebody comes in and says, oh, I'm already in menopause now you know, but I have some bone health issues and things of that nature. How do you help them sort of move through some of that? Because, you know, maybe they didn't, you know, they weren't on any hormones. They didn't realize they should be, you know, they went through menopause way before and now, you know, they have some bone health issues. So how are you handling and helping them? For sure. The longer you're in menopause, the higher risk there is for a decrease in that bone health. Um, Women that have a strong family history for osteoporosis will do early screenings, checking on their bone density. That's with that DEXA scan. Otherwise, we wait until it's been about 15 years since they became menopausal to do that scan or at the age of 65 and then checking that bone density. But preventatively, you know, definitely making sure you're getting calcium, 1200 milligrams a day with um, a D3 supplement also, 
you'll absorb calcium through your foods much better than through a supplement. So I say if you're eating dairy products or getting those green leafy vegetables, just track for a few days to see, am I getting around 1200 milligrams or not? If so, then you're getting enough and you don't need a supplement. And then also weight-bearing exercise. So walking and using weights has been shown as the best way to help your bones to stay healthy once you're in menopause. But also estrogen can slow the rate of the bone deterioration as well. And so if someone has been in menopause for a while and they're worried about their bone health or they have what we call pre-osteoporosis osteopenia, then there's studies that say that estrogen can help you prevent your body or slow the rate of it becoming osteoporosis when the bones are so brittle that they're at increased risk for them having a fracture. If you can catch it and make changes before you get to osteoporosis, it can make a big difference for sure. With estrogen, it, say you're longer than that 10 years or over the age of 60 when we're starting estrogen replacement therapy. We just make sure that there's not a lot of underlying medical conditions, high blood pressure, history of any cardiac stats, strokes, things like that, because it would change the way that we would manage it. Yes. Um, so if I sort of kind of hear you saying right a little bit, like sometimes estrogen is needed, you know, at this stage for some people. So do you kind of do more estrogen rich foods maybe to start or things of that nature? Or do you say, oh, like we might supplement or? Yep. So if, if someone, maybe they went and got their bone scan and they have maybe one area that showed pre-osteoporosis, at that point, I think talking about if they're open to doing a low dose of an estrogen supplement medication. So usually I'll recommend the patch, which is absorbed through the skin and it's a much lower dose than taking something orally. When you're taking it orally, the dose is higher. And again, it has that kidney and liver interaction. And so if you can give things transdermally or through the skin, there's less risk. Of and then also there's different kinds of medications. You know, the physicians can talk about medications for increasing the activity, walking, weight-bearing exercise, getting calcium in your diet can help. There's nothing that has said certain foods can improve the estrogen enough to make a difference to slow the rate of bone loss. Oh, I appreciate that because people talk about that a lot and you're like wondering, is that really, do you know I mean, a component of it? So that's important to yeah. actually recognize. What if somebody, you know, had a hysterectomy you know, so, you know, uterus, cervix gone. Is there a difference in the way maybe you give hormones, whether it be perimenopause or menopause, just so people have a vision of that as well? Yeah. So if women have a hysterectomy and they only take the uterus and the cervix, the ovaries are still there functioning as normal. And so those women wouldn't go into menopause until they would have, even if their uterus was still there. When you have a hysterectomy where they take your ovaries as well, that's when you instantly become menopausal from surgery, your ovaries are removed and now your hormones are obsolete. Women who have early um, removal of their ovaries, so if they're in their 30s or early 40s, their lifetime without hormones is much longer than somebody that retains their ovaries and has them naturally until they're in menopause. And so the studies show that long term that there are more health risks for women that have both their ovaries removed that have not been on a hormone replacement therapy after surgery to manage their hormones if they're young when the ovaries come out. So, uh, so people, so let's just bring up some of our oncology patients, maybe our breast cancer patients that then are put on tamoxifen or some kind of a blocker, right? Estrogen blocker. And, you know, then 
they feel like, oh man, everything in my pelvic floor changes, like my whole body changed. Yeah. What, how do you help them? How do you help walk through some of these things with them? Yeah. So the pelvic floor definitely is affected, you know, after a treatment for breast cancer and even with menopause. So there are medications outside of estrogen that can help the pelvic floor. There's something called intrarosa, which is a DHEA. DHEA is like a precursor to estrogen. And so a lot of the oncologists are clearing women to use this sub or um, prescription, the DHEA suppository kind of insert and finding that it's not increasing any risk and it's non-hormonal. And so it's an option. And there's some other medications out there that can help their symptoms. And so women oftentimes don't bring up that they're having pain with intercourse or vaginal dryness after they've had these cancer treatments because they're like, well, I can't have hormones. There's so many other options that they can go over with their providers. So I think it's worth them having a discussion with them and they can always run things by their oncologist. If they have some suggestions, a lot of times they can go back and check like, this is what my provider suggested. Are you okay with me starting this prescription? So I just saw a really great study on the pelvic floor using like topical DHEA and it was actually a I mean, it was actually remarkable yeah. how much improvement happened just with that. And yet there seems to be sometimes some confusion because it's sort of the precursor to, you know, like hormones, like people get nervous. So, you know, help again, just so people hear you say that, hey, this is something that they are using, you know what I mean? And to help this tissue. Yeah. I always tell people to to look on the North American Menopause Society website. They have so many great educational sources on there. But in 2023, just this year, they did a, a huge statement on the safety of topical vaginal treatments. And then they have areas in there that they discuss specifically people with a history of types of cancer, endometrial cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, things like that. But it it's seeing like now more of the oncologists are understanding how the DHEA is working, even topical vaginal estrogen and finding that it can be very safe. The DHEA, it's just going to be absorbed locally in the cells within the vagina. And then the cells absorb those and convert it into hormones that they're lacking. And it's just in that cell that it's exposed to. And so it's not throughout the whole body. And so we're not seeing any kind of like body-wide changes when they're using that. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, just because when we kind of saw yep. a lot of that, I mean, when that study of DHEA came out locally, it was so impressive. Yeah. And we were like, okay, this is such a great tool. I mean, not even if someone didn't have, you know, cancer, but just yeah. using it. So some of our physicians are compounding now the HA with the DHEA. And it's a, oh, yes. really been a, yeah, really a nice, you know, just helping us in the floor really keep this great pliability and just improving people's health in the floor so quickly. Yeah. That kind of combination. And there are, so. yeah, combinations and they'll be, sometimes they'll add vitamin E. The compounding pharmacies have like these hydration kind of vaginal inserts that can be prescribed that can really help the symptoms too. And it's something you don't have to use every day. Even once or twice a week can make a huge difference. And also what we're seeing is the longer women are in menopause, it can affect the bladder in the urethra. The cells within the bladder have less elasticity. The urethra actually shortens. And I'm sure you see this all the time, increased risk for bladder infections. And then the older women are, there's increased risk if they have a bladder infection, it goes to their kidneys and then they can kind of get really sick throughout their whole body. They can get illness after a bladder infection. And so safety with vaginal estrogen has been shown to decrease 
bladder infections by introducing estrogen into that local area again. And also women, if they've been treated for cancer, the DHEA has been shown to kind of help those bladder symptoms as well. And people working through like pelvic floor physical therapy and using pessaries, which are a device to kind of like support the bladder if they have a mild prolapse or something like that, using the DHEA or the estrogen will just kind of help it to be more effective. That's great. So explain a little bit, because I know sometimes, you know, we probably differ a little bit because some people put it on with just like a plunger and just put it all in there. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, we PTs who do all the pelvic work, we're like, no, like we want you to put it all in and literally. And and so talk about that a little bit about the plunging versus like, are, yeah. are we okay saying to topically rub it in there and and or do we should we just be plunging talk about that yep so first it comes in different ways so estrogen you can have like a tablet the little tablet is placed way at the back of the vagina and the mucosa will soften it and then it will kind of just be absorbed locally but the cream does have that plunger and then the plunger it's similar to like an at-home monostat or something like that but if you get it all the way to the back of the vagina and then insert the cream at the back it should coat all of that tissue But if you're having pain, mostly like just at the opening, at the entrance of the vaginal tissue, I think massaging it in there, making sure that you're getting that cream on the area that's the most uncomfortable, you're going to get better results than if it's just at the back of the vagina. And same with those DHEA, usually it's a suppository. So you want it all the way at the back of the vagina, not just in the middle, because you want it to get to all the tissue that's in there. But I do think that especially women with the pessary, they can locally, you know, I tell them like fill the whole finger with cream on it and start it kind of swat, swirl it all the way around. So they're coating the entire opening of the vaginal opening. Yes. And I think, thank you for saying that because I do think there's different ways and I like to talk about it because sometimes people, you know, coming into my office will be like, oh, well, you know, I got Invexi, but like, I'm just pushing it oh, in yes. there and I'm like, okay, hey, well, where are you putting it exactly? And yeah. You know, people will be like, oh, it's all sloppy. It already fell out. I'm like, no, like, okay, so then it didn't have a chance, right? Just right, sort of it didn't work. Get, yeah, get back in there. So are you kind of, I, I, a lot of times I tell people, hey, no, you're going to do this at nighttime, you know, like bedtime bed so that it doesn't feel like it's all coming out. Because, you know, these are a lot of the sort of daily questions. That's I I get about some of these topical things. Okay, how are we doing it? You know, am I using the plunger? Am I not? But I love how you're like, hey, put it way back in there. You're going to have downtime. So your body's actually relaxing, absorbing all of this. So it gets the best out of it. You know, I tell them, hey, if you know you're having intercourse that night, don't put it on then, put it on afterward, you know, like those sorts of things. Yeah, after. So so there's some of that sort of conversation that we're having. So I, I just wanted to add, I'm glad you said, uh, put it way back up in there. And then it comes yeah. and like you said, a lot of times too, like we'll put it right around an area too, where we're like, hey, that's an area that's more sensitive or irritated or an area that, you know, kind of needs a little bit of extra help maybe. And then yes. they feel 10 times better, so much faster. So if yep. you- And I think you hit like on that, a big point know, too. Oh, sorry. You just hit on a good point to using it at bedtime. I feel like they're going to get the best benefit. I tell them when you go to the bathroom the last time for the night, then use your estrogen or DHEA. And then you'll be in bed laying down and that gives the body time. It's going to get warm. It's going to soften. And then it's not all going to just drain out with gravity. When you're laying in bed, it's going to have more time to absorb. 
And then it's not harmful if they are sexually active after they place it, but it will be more effective if they do it afterwards. Right. Okay. Thank you. I like that too. That That's a good clarification because they asked that too. Am I doing yeah. it before? Am I doing it after? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Thank you so much, Brianne, for being with us today and just sharing all this information. You know, you can see why there's so much confusion and so much oh, what do I do and who do I talk to? But the idea of all this is just to share information, give education and help people sort of start to grow and understanding, oh, how do I talk to my providers? How do I help them understand? I love the fact that you talked about the log, you know, keeping track for two to three months, whether it's, you know, diet, exercise, like what your symptomology is. I think this is a really great reminder that we as people coming into our providers need to have good information so that we can actually get what's best for us. So, you know, that we're saying, hey, these are what I, this is really what I want. This is what's been going on for me. And now you can help us so much better that way if we have that information. Yes, definitely. And then also a reminder that you're not going to feel better instantly. You, your body takes time to make these changes before you feel off or feel different. And so it takes time to build back up. And so some people two weeks in, they're like, oh, this did not work and they stop it. But I say, give it, you know, when you make a change, even if it's with supplements or diet, exercise, anything, kind of that magic three months is how long it takes until you're going to know if it makes a difference. So be patient, give it a little bit of time, give it time to see if it works. Thank you so much. I appreciate all your information. I appreciate your time today. And I I love it. And I'm sure we'll be talking to you again in the future because people will always have very specific questions. About what yes. you want to learn. Get those about. questions written down and we can answer them. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, Brianne. Have a great night. Thanks, Sherry. Take care. Okay. Bye bye.